Okay. I remember my church in Peterborough, and we had a lady who was about 50 who just dropped dead. Her husband was English. Well, I think he was a Geordie, but I think that counts. And uh, it was his second time his wife had died. And I just remember my heart sinking when we heard the news, and I'm not sure we ever knew really why. And it happened on a Wednesday, and I was preaching that night in the church, and you know, I pondered and thought, you know, there are two ways you can go. One is you can kind of coil up, <laughs> recognize that it is hard all around us, and, and it is, genuinely so. But on that day, I remember inside of me just started rising up something. Uh, and, and what rose up inside of me was, don't be surprised, we know this is a fight. Yeah. Uh, and I just felt the Lord rising up inside of me with a fresh passion and a fresh fire, as if to say, if ever, this was, if ever there was a time to stand up, if ever there was a time to preach the gospel, if there, ever there was a time for us to be the church, this was it. And I was filled with, I think, what was probably a righteous anger. I, I, there was no temptation for me to displace any of my frustration on the Lord. I'm completely grounded in his faithfulness. There's no problem there. But it did make me a tad angry at the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And again, that something inside of me rose up and said, every time I'm going to fight this, every time I'm going to stand up, and if it does anything, it's just going to make me more passionate, yeah. more fiery, yeah. and more determined to keep preaching yeah. good news. Amen. And so that sort of ties in really with what we've been speaking on the last few weeks, a year of opportunity, the sense that God is at work, that he's stirring, that he's doing something, that we're seeing an increase in his activity, if you like, that, that people are perhaps slightly riper in responding to the gospel. I hope you enjoyed last week. Um, I did. I was in my caravan. Uh, I understand Mike preached up a storm. Heart in the harvest, the harvest in your heart. Oh, good news for you. Next week we have Guy Chevreau speaking here in the morning and at that covenant service at Chipping Camp, and he's speaking in the evening too. So come and be doubly, triply, quadruply blessed. I would say that. But for me, there remains this sense that God is up to something, that we really are in a year of opportunity. Just cast my mind back to two weeks ago, that baptismal service. Wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that fantastic? Just that, that real sense of celebration and jubilation. You know, we had we a had busload of people, of teenage kids from school in Stratford coming to see their friends give those two stunning testimonies and get wet for Jesus. I tell you what, it was exciting stuff. That, for me, is golden. That's what it's all about. It feels to me as though something is stirring. And so the premise, really, of this course is that God is, God is at work all around us. And, and that actually, the God is, is and has strategically placed opportunities in our path, opportunities for us to join in with his mission. And his mission, in case you've forgotten, is to seek and save that which was lost. And where we were a couple of weeks ago, the last time I was up here, really is, is asking the question, how did Jesus deal with, how did he respond to, how did he make the most of the opportunities all around him? 
the opportunities that God strategically placed, if you like, in his path. And, and there's no doubt as you read those gospel accounts, Jesus was the absolute master. And so the question for us is, what can we learn from what Jesus did uh, and what he said, what approaches he took, what, what priorities he had, what methods he used? Last time we looked at the story of Zacchaeus, which is a great story. And, and the sort of overall point that I, they, that I brought out really was, if, if I wanted to summarize Jesus' approach, it goes something like this. First of all, he walked the talk. He earned the right to speak, which is what we looked at last time. Jesus, he saw through the eye of compassion. We'll see a little bit of that today. I think he saw differently to everyone else. So he saw through the eye of compassion. Then he followed the Spirit's leading. The sense every time that the Spirit was taking him in a certain direction, was prompting him in a certain way, was revealing to him certain pieces of information. Jesus followed that to the letter, and then, fourthly, he seized the moment. He didn't hold back. He didn't waste time. He got in there and did exactly what his father had purposed in that situation. What we did last time is we started to break that down. We, look, we looked literally at how Jesus practically set things up, how, how Jesus embraced um, interruptions, how he engaged with the individuals, even though he was so busy and had this crowd thronged around him, how Jesus took the time to deal with individual situations. We looked at, at Jesus' integrity, how it, how it prepared the way. We looked at how Jesus served people's needs, whether they were felt needs, whether they were emotional needs, whether they were physical, tangible needs. He healed them first. And then he spoke the truth. Today I want to look at the, the second, third, and fourth in, in that list, the eye of compassion, the, the spirits leading, the, the seizing of the moment boldly. And I'm actually going to read another story to give you another example of, of what Jesus did, how he did it. And this is just a personal favorite. And it's, it's John chapter 8. And it's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. We've looked at this before. We'll look at it again because it's such a rich story. But it goes something like this. John 8, reading in the New Living Translation. Jesus returned early to the Mount of Olives. Sorry, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. That's probably a nice way of putting it. They tossed her in the dust at their feet. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. That's so rich. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. 
Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I love this passage. It's so, it's so rich, so powerful. Jesus is so unbelievably wise in this. And I think it's really important that, that we do it like this. That we ask the question, what exactly was it that Jesus did? And then we imitate that. So I've divided this, this statement up. The second one is what I described as, as, as Jesus' attitude. That Jesus saw through the eye of compassion. And there's four parts to this. I'm going to break them down briefly. The first thing is Jesus walked towards the mess. Secondly, he always erred on the side of grace. Thirdly, he received criticism for being too compassionate. And fourthly, Jesus had this amazing ability to look past the masks and straight into the heart. I think it would be fair to say that if you look at that list of four, that has not always been, sadly, the church's reputation. To which I'd say, how about we change that? It's called this Compassion Lead My Heart, this section. Compassion Lead My Heart. You see, while, while the religious people were judging, while they were being legalistic, while they were trying to win an argument with Jesus, Jesus was staring into a broken heart. He, what he saw there was a real lost soul. Someone who was hurting and needy and crying out. While that was going on, the Holy Spirit was jumping up and down on the inside of Jesus, saying, I think, two words. Redeem, restore. Redeem and restore. Saying, don't, don't reject, accept. Don't repel, welcome. Don't judge, Forgive. Don't write off. Restore. Don't be legalistic. Be gracious. And as we look through the whole of the Gospels, we see that Jesus stood for and Jesus taught and Jesus demonstrated radical, extraordinary, life-changing grace. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus stood for lavish grace. He taught radical grace. He demonstrated life-changing grace everywhere he went. In what he taught, you know, this focus on mercy and forgiveness, on the second chance, the turning of the other cheek, the forgiving, the loving, the the praying, the blessing. In the stories that he told, and I think about the story of the lost sheep leaving the one, sorry, leaving the 99 to go and find the one. The story of the prodigal son in which, you know, we know the story, the son goes off, takes his father's money, squanders it on wild living, reaches the absolute bottom of the pit and then comes crawling back to his dad essentially on his knees saying, I can, if only I could just be a servant in your house. And in that story, the father comes running 
to greet the son. In spite of all the son has done, in spite of the indignity in that culture of the father even running, he comes running with a hand of grace stretched out. And the message in that is that the father goes after the sinner. Rather than avoiding the sinner because he's unclean, which is what the Pharisees were doing, the father comes running. The father goes looking, seeking for the lost one. What he taught, the stories he told, what he did, he acted out grace, the story of Zacchaeus pulling down this horrible, vile sinner, as it were, out of the tree. I'm coming to your house. You know, this woman here, thrown at his feet, he had every reason to judge her. He was, after all, the one who was without sin. And yet he acted out grace. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6 have been one of our passages through the series. It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everybody. And I'd say this, if, if we, if we as a church, if we as the, the people of God are going to be recognized by anything, let it be by our grace. And the sad reality is, at least in the outside perception, Christians are seen to be ungracious. You know, and we do, we, we, we've talked about this before, we do wrestle with tensions of grace against truth, of judgment versus discernment, of loving inclusion versus fighting for the preservation of biblical morality. And we haven't always got it right, historically. And so we look at Jesus. And perhaps the conundrum of, of, of Jesus is, though Jesus was the purest and the most holy ever to set foot on this planet by a very, very large margin, sinners ran to Jesus rather than away from him. This leads to a parallel question. Do, do sinners run to church or do they run away? Do they run to Christians or do they run away from Christians when they see them coming? And the amazing thing is actually the worse a person felt about themselves, the more likely they were to see Jesus as their refuge. And the church must be that place. The church is supposed to be a haven of grace in a world of ungrace. In a world that's symbolized by competition and peer pressure and bullying, where justice means revenge, where mercy gets confused with entitlement, where love is confused with all sorts of things. The church needs to be a haven of grace. So what do we see in Jesus that we need to embrace? Number one, he walked towards the mess. Number two, he always erred on the side of grace. Number three, he did receive criticism for being too compassionate. I can imagine what they were saying after this story behind closed doors. And he looked past the mask and through directly into the heart. I want to break those four down. The first one, Walking towards the mess. 
You know, when our flesh yells, run. When, when the law shouts, no. Where angels fear to tread. Jesus didn't run. He reached out. He touched. He embraced. In fact, Jesus had a really, really soft spot for the messy. Look at who Jesus dealt with. The tax collectors and sinners. He reached out to women. He reached out to the ones that were unclean. He even, he even reached out to the women of ill repute. He touched the leper. When everyone else heard the cowbell, as it were, ringing around their neck and ran in the opposite direction, Jesus touched the leper. He engaged the Samaritan woman at the well in conversation. He even spoke to the Roman centurion and healed his servant. You know, and if it was unpopular, if it was unfashionable, if it was difficult, if it was inconvenient, Jesus still walked towards the mess. And so must we. You know, it's comfortable to have a church full of people just like us but it's very unbiblical. The question is, how far are we prepared to go? There's a, there's a stretch implied in walking towards the mess. That statement, it's not my statement, I've plagiarized it, I'm not worried about that. But there's, I love the idea, that I love the stretch, the challenge of walking towards the mess. Surely, that's what we need to be doing. And something so right, I think, in that challenge. But should we be running away from all the difficult situations that are probably bubbling up in your head right now? Should we be running away from these situations, away from the mess, away from the sin, away from whatever, the opinions? Or should we running, be running towards them? Because the danger is, if grace doesn't lead that way, the, our doors will close very quickly on the very people that we're trying to reach. And the danger is we become a church for church people, for church people only. And we close the door on the very people that we are commissioned to reach. A quote to read you from Andy Stanley under the title, Walking Towards the Mess, talking about his church in Atlanta. Where grace and truth meet, it gets really messy. Certainly, it's impossible to be fair or consistent. Jesus appeared to be neither. Jesus' seeming inconsistencies drove religious leaders crazy. Fairness can be an excuse for non-engagement. The quest for consistency can become an excuse not to help. But we walk towards the messy. In other words, we don't feel compelled to sort everything or everyone out ahead of time. We're not going to spend countless hours creating policies for every eventuality. Instead, we've chosen to wade in hip deep and sort things out. One relationship, one conversation at a time. And when we walk towards the mess, towards the confusion, the uncertainty, the challenge, are we going to get everything right? No. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes. Are we going to be inconsistent and unfair? Yes but it's worth the risk if eternal destinies are at stake. 
Second one, Jesus always erred on the side of grace. Think of Zacchaeus. There's Zacchaeus up in the tree. You know, I reckon there are 101 different things, very valid points that Jesus could have made to Zacchaeus. But I reckon he made one. You matter to me. For the woman caught in adultery, you know, Jesus didn't just ignore the sin, but he restored first. And then he left grace, actually, to do its work. Such a simple statement. Neither do I condemn you. Then go and sin no more. I'd have, I'm a preacher. I'd have struggled to say it so concisely. I'd have struggled to leave it there. I would want to have given her a, you know, a hundred hours of teaching on how to do that. But Jesus knew the extraordinary power of grace. And actually, around this room, we are all living testimonies of the amazing power of grace. You know, no wonder John Newton, the slave trader, could write that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. Let me read that to you again. Three verses. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Think of that woman caught in adultery, tossed in the dust, half-dressed, humiliated, guilty. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Again, folks, here's the point. If we are going to be recognized by anything, let it be by our grace. Jesus was, and he wasn't universally popular for it. In fact, the third point, Jesus received criticism for being too gracious. But I think Jesus was okay with that. He certainly seemed to be okay with that. And I want people to be able to walk into church and smell the grace. I want that grace to be a sweet fragrance that attracts people to Jesus, that steers them to what the Bible calls the throne of grace. I just read a little tweet this morning. How amazing that we have a God whose, whose throne is called a mercy seat. Isn't that amazing? So I think our, our task as a church is to create a grace-based community where people are allowed to be in a mess, where people are allowed to fail, where people are restored, not written off, where people don't have to have all the answers, they don't have to wear some false Sunday morning mask. And we let grace do its amazing work. Where we walk with people along the journey, because once upon a time, we were there too, or maybe in the future. Where actually, we become part of people's solution rather than piling on the problem. Where it isn't grace for me and judgment for them, which I think is ingrained in human nature. Where we exemplify the behavior that Jesus called for, we exemplify it, and then we allow it to rub off rather than thumping them with it. 
where we discern what grace sees rather than condemning what we see with the natural eye. Anyone can do that. Many do. Just Google and check. We discern what grace sees. That woman tossed at Jesus' feet. What did he see? He wasn't hasty, was he? Got down in the dust and started writing. We don't know what he's writing. Looking forward to asking him that one. People have said Jesus wrote the law. Jesus was getting down, probably writing the commandments out as if to say, who are you to tell me? I wrote it long before you, but I don't know. But he paused, didn't he? And I think he asked the Father, my word, Lord, well, what do I do? And he heard the Holy Spirit whisper, and incredible wisdom came out. You know, it takes maturity to walk towards the mess, to look past the masks and into the heart. But this is the gospel. The gospel is that there is no one that Jesus cannot and will not touch. That there is no sin too great, there is no life too lost, no personality too quirky, no pain too deep, no shackle too tight, no heart too broken. The message of the gospel, which after all means good news, is that Jesus came, lived the life that you could never have lived. He died the death that you should have died to pay the price, the penalty that you should have paid and to give you a future that you didn't deserve. That's called grace. We don't merit it. We don't earn it. But God gives it to us freely, freely and willingly anyway. Walking towards the mess. In my overall summary statement of how Jesus dealt with, made the most of opportunities, the third one was, was the spiritual side, how he followed the Spirit's leading. Under this heading, again, four points. Number one, Jesus followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit in every individual situation. Secondly, different situations had different whispers and different responses. If you go looking for patterns in what Jesus did, you can see the patterns, but every situation was different. Every person was different. And so Jesus dealt differently as the Holy Spirit led. We also see that Jesus was prepared to take a risk. And also, number four, Jesus kept his personal well topped up. So he always had something to give. And I don't have time to go through all of these in detail today, Maybe another day. But just to pull out a few things, I've summarised this bit. Holy Spirit, be my guide. And as we read this, the text makes it very clear that this was set up as a trap for Jesus. This was a lose-lose. He was caught between a rock, if you excuse the pun, and a hard place. They were trying to hook him in and give him nowhere to go. And it went something like this. If you let her off, if you let her walk away, then it proves that you are against the law. If you judge her and allow us to throw these stones, what you are demonstrating actually is that you are against the little people. And all the way through your ministry, you've been advocating for the little people. Which one are you going to do, Jesus? And so there's Jesus writing in the dust on the floor, just searching within, I think, just softening his heart, 
opening his spiritual ears and perceiving Holy Spirit wisdom. And he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. You know, and it's amazing, awesome to me, the Holy Spirit has the keys. Whatever situation, whatever mess, whatever challenge, whatever question, he has the keys. And so the repeated message for us as Christians is that he knows. Uh, so we need to grow in our ability to hear and to discern and to perceive the thing that he knows. And actually, this is what maturity is all about. This is what it means to be spiritual. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. Actually, this is why we're charismatics, because we've recognized we need the Holy Spirit. We need those gifts. And I think the moral through all of this is we, we recognize what the Holy Spirit is saying, and we do that. And actually, we do only that. We, we relax. And we recognize that we have a part in this. It may be a small part. But sowing Holy Spirit seed is a really, really powerful thing. And once that seed is sown, that seed has a life of its own. It doesn't need your help. What it does need is for you to sow it. And so Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And he planted a life-changing seed. We don't know the rest of the story. One day we'll find out. But I'm sure that lady was completely changed that day. So we get, really, a, a privilege, a thrill, I think, of participating in what God is doing. Just the last one here, and then we'll wrap up. See through the eye of compassion. Next one, following the Spirit's leading. And the fourth one is the boldness aspect. Seizing the moment. Again, four points. Number one, Jesus never wasted an opportunity. He never backed off. He never left the job half done. Secondly, Jesus paid more attention to kingdom fruit than potentially awkward, difficult, actually devastating earthly consequences. Jesus knew as he was writing in the dust, he knew what this response was going to conjure up. It was pretty clear. Around about this time, it was very clear in the Pharisees, the religious authorities' mind's eye that Jesus had to die. And he knew what he was doing, but he was more interested in the, the heavenly kingdom fruit than worrying about those earthly consequences. Third one, although Jesus uh, was always compassionate, he didn't shy away from issuing a strong challenge. Jesus taught a lot about tough love. Go and sin no more. That's a tough challenge right there. That's strong. And number four sums it all up really. He walked by faith, Jesus. Jesus responded outwardly to what he saw inwardly. He saw the situation through the eye of faith. And the eye of faith trumped the eye of uncertainty or fear. Or, or, or an eye that only sees the partial picture. But he saw through the eye of faith and he responded outwardly 
to what God showed him to do, that and that alone. I've called this section, Boldness Define My Actions. You know, when he was confronted by his enemies, when he was dealing with people with completely opposing mindsets who were not playing fair at all, Jesus did not back down. Why? Because he trusted God the Father as his rock and the Holy Spirit as his guide. So as we witness, as we stand for truth, as we share the gospel, as we encounter opportunity on the way, we need to be bold. The boldness in witnessing is not a rash, kind of brazen, carefree. We can be bold because we know that the seed is good. Because we know the mandate that we've been given, the commission that Jesus has set before us. We can be bold because we've sought the Lord's leading. We can be bold because ultimately we know whose reputation it is at stake. And boldness then does what is required of the Lord. No more and no less. Boldness define my actions. So much in there, maybe another day. But that wraps up this series, the year of opportunity, making the most of those opportunities. I hope you found it interesting. I have. I hope you found it helpful, challenging. I hope now that you are seeing more opportunities around you. They were probably there before, but now you see them because the harvest is in your heart and your heart is in the harvest. You know, I hope that, that you and I are now better equipped to make the most of those opportunities around them. There is a series that, that we're going to do later in the year. It's a Bill Hybels series called Just Walk Across the Room. Some of you may have heard it, seen it, read the books before. It doesn't matter, it's brilliant. I just read the book for the third time. Still great. But I thought we'd put a bit of space between this series and that one, change the tone a bit and come back to it. And that series looks really specifically about how you, how you share your faith. When you get to that moment, when you've done all of this, you've walked towards a mess, you've earned the right, you've, grace has won, and you're sitting with someone now, what do you do? How do you take them on the next step? And that's really good. I'm looking forward to, do, to, to preaching that one. We'll have some drama in that too. It's going to be fun. But I just want to leave you with a final challenge before we close today. Now the challenge goes something like this. Let's have our eyes open to see what God is doing all around us. Because I guarantee you God is at work. He is stirring, even if they're hardened. He is at work. He is tugging. He is drawing. He is molding and he is working. Let's have eyes open to see what God is doing in those lives all around us. You know, you've got people at work, probably. You've got people in your leisure activities. You've got people who live down the street. You've got people with kids, same age as your kids. You know, I'm not suggesting we be all over them like a rash in the next seven days. What I am suggesting is we have our eyes open. And probably the first way to do that is to have our heart open and pray. And say, Lord, okay, 
Round about here, I know you're at work. I know there are opportunities. Lord, show me. Show me. Show me. And the next phase from there, I think, is, is to be responsive to the tug of compassion. Jesus, faced with this woman, saw through a completely different lens to the other guys. They were ready to rip her to shreds, and Jesus saw this broken woman. You know, I'd like to think when we see people around us, we engage with them, we do react to it emotionally. The question is, are we sensitive to that compassion? The compassion is the Holy Spirit on the inside. And when we look at situations, we might, I think that we might look at three situations. They may be similar situations. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit inside is going to give you compassion in one of them. You know, yes, there's sympathy there. Yes, there's concern there. But this one here is the one that the Holy Spirit starts jumping up and down inside of you. Let's learn to recognize that leading, that sense, that perception, and to follow it. Next part of the challenge is let's be redolent with grace. Let's be full of grace. Let's be a haven of grace. Let's, be, let's go the extra mile, if you like, in being gracious. If we're going to lean too far anyway, let it be in the direction of grace. I'm a Rick Warren. He's a bit of a giant tweeting that. If I'm going to be lean too far away, if I'm going to be criticized for anything, let it be that I was too gracious. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I might get things wrong. But I'm okay with that. And I think Jesus was. And let us allow, as we create the culture around here, as we run Messy Church today, as we do whatever it is we do around it, let's be that haven of grace. So that everyone who walks through these doors doesn't come across three or four walls of resistance before they get to Jesus. Let's take all those walls down and let's be able to present Jesus right up front. This is him. Let's be redolent with grace. Let's be asking the Holy Spirit always what he wants us to do. You know, I remember, I don't know what you think of Benny Hinn, but I remember years ago reading his book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. And, and that for me awakened something. You know, I, I can walk with him. I can talk with him. I can dialogue with him. I can, I can take all my question concerns. I can be walking down the street saying, okay, Lord, what do I do with this one? I can be praying it under my breath while they're pouring out their problems saying, okay, Holy Spirit, this is too big for me, but you have the keys. Let's be asking, let's be dialoguing what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And then, of course, let's step out and do it. Let's be bold. What do they pray for in the book of Acts when they were under persecution? When Peter and, and uh, John had healed the man at the temple gate, the crippled guy, and they arrested them and they threatened them and they said, don't you dare preach in his name anymore. What did the believers do? They gathered together and said, Lord, give us more fire. Give us, deepen that passion. Make us more bold to preach the gospel. So much so that day that the, actually the room shook. Wonderful story. And I suppose if I had to summarize it all up in one sentence, it would be this. Let's, let us be Jesus to the world. And it's that old line, you are the only Jesus that they will ever see. That's a, that's a stiff challenge, isn't it? Actually, to be Jesus. Kind of makes me gulp a little bit. Actually, my next, I think, I'm not promising this because it's two weeks, but I think my next series is going to be called Christ Reformed in Me. So that might speak into that one. So that might be a divinely inspired link, I think.
But anyway, the purpose of this really was to get this on the radar, to throw it out there, to get things stirring inside of you because, you know, we have to be a people of mission. We have to be outwardly focused because it's very easy in our busy lives to encrust around and start becoming introverted and only see what's right in front of us. And that's a real shame because if we do that, we miss our very purpose as a church. So what I'm going to do is, is uh, I'm going to pray and wrap this up. We will have a, a, sh- a short time of, of ministry. Prayer will be available for anyone who'd like it this morning. But, but I think as a church, it would be good to, to respond to that today. So if I can invite you to stand. Uh, and I'm going to pray that God would use us for his glory. Is that okay? Can I do that? Are you comfortable with that? Okay, let's pray. Father God, on today of all days, we are reminded that we are in a world with eternal consequences. That this is not a game. We are not a project. This is not a social club. But this is about the propagation of the gospel. This is about the sowing of seeds. This is about continuing the amazing work that Jesus started. That you haven't pulled together a body so that we can cuddle each other, although it's good to do that. And we need to do that. But you've called us to be a body so we can reach out. You've given us feet so we can run. You've given us brains so we can think. You've given us a pulsing heart so we can respond. You've given us hands so we can heal. And Father, all we can do as a body of believers is to humbly fall on our knees and say, Lord, would you take our simple offering of who we are? Perhaps the gifts that you've planted within us, the ideas that you've given us, the opportunities that you've laid before us, and help us, Lord, to leverage those for your glory to have that boldness, to have that compassion, to have that discernment, that perception, to have that graciousness so that we can be Jesus to the world. And Lord, we're well aware of what an extraordinary statement that is. And yet we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And yet one of the last things Jesus said was, wait in Jerusalem and do you know what? The Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you're going to receive the very power you need to go and be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Lord, we need that power. We know that. That's why we come to a charismatic church, because we've identified that in our own strength, there is very little we can do, but in your strength, there is nothing that we cannot do. You can do immeasurably more than we can ask, think, or imagine. What can you do, Lord, with a surrendered heart? Holy Spirit, whisper in our ears. Tug on our hearts. Show us what we need to do. In Jesus' name. Amen.